start with? Um, my hope was that this was going to show up a little better. Um, but I printed it there in front of you. Has anybody seen this picture before? It has made the rounds um, on the internet. Um, I would say it's somewhat popular. It actually won um, uh, honorable mention in a scientific art um, competition back in 2008. Now, if you're wondering, what is scientific art? It's just that. It's art that like, depicts and communicates and you know, uh, portrays science, scientific things. What is this? Um, if you see at the bottom, there is a, a title there, Cross-References of the Bible. And it, 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 it was created by two men, um, Pastor Christoph, no idea how to pronounce that, um, from, a Lutheran pastor from Germany. So I, maybe I should know how to pronounce it, but I don't. And Professor Chris Harrison, not, not the guy off of Bachelor. Um, <laughs> professor Chris Harrison. He's a professor at a, a small liberal arts university in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, and what it is, is it is a chart. So the, the Lutheran pastor in Germany, what he did is he started to plot out all of the cross-references in the Bible. What is a cross-reference? Does anybody know? If you have a study Bible, your Bible's full of them. And you should use them from time to time. Yeah. So if you have a study Bible like I do, the whole middle column there between the, the, the two columns, it's all Bible passages, all, all references to other part, parts of the Bible. Those are cross-references. Um, so when another passage is quoted in somewhere else in the Bible, or where another person's name is mentioned, or a place is mentioned, or an event is, is depicted, where you see the multiple connections between you know, different parts of the Bible. So this Lutheran pastor in Germany started to plot out all of the different places and times that there were cross-references in the Bible. And he had all of these passages linked up. And he contacted his friend, Professor Chris Harrison, who is someone who has, uh, is known for turning data or statistics into graphs and charts and, and art. And he said, hey, what can you do with this? How can you take all of those numbers and all of those verses and all of those books of the Bible and how can you turn them into something visual for people to see? And this is what they came up with. So, if you are, are looking at your sheet, or you're looking up here on the screen, um, all of the, the bars at the bottom, maybe it, it shows up a little better on your handout, you see there are different shades of gray? There's two on there, one at the very beginning, doesn't really show up on here. The very beginning is white, and then this one is white. All the rest of them are different shades of gray. What it means to show you is, each of the different shades of gray is a different book of the Bible. So the first book of the Old Testament, Genesis, is white, and the first book of the New Testament, Matthew, is white. 
And then after that, you see the light gray, the darker gray, the light gray, the darker gray. Those would be the, the consecutive books after that. If you zoom in even more, and you see the, the bars down below. So you, you, take, you take one of the, uh, the light gray sections, and you zoom in even more. You see you get these different length bars. Within each book of the Bible, there are different chapters and verses. And what each one of these lines represents is a verse in the Bible. Or, I'm sorry, a chapter in the Bible. Okay? And the differing lengths shows you how long each chapter is. So which one would you guess is right here in the middle, the longest chapter of the Bible? Psalm 119, Psalm 119 right? So that is the long one that goes all the way down to the bottom of the picture. So this is going to be Genesis, this is going to be Revelation, this is Psalms right in the middle, okay? Then what you have is, you've got where there's a passage in Psalm 119, that is either quoted somewhere in the New Testament or somewhere in the Old Testament, there is a line drawn to connect them. Now the differing colors goes to show you how far apart that cross-reference is. So the differing colors are not just there for effect. It's not like random, let's make this look like a rainbow. The point of it is how far apart the cross-references are, we're going to make that one color. And the closer they get, the, the different color that they, the, they will be. What I really like is you can't even see it. Um, this is how close some of them get. You, you can't see it in your picture. You've got to get a high definition and a rather large one to be able to zoom in and see how from chapter to chapter there are cross-references. Um, so this is um, sort of what has become kind of a famous picture to... to detail to, to put into art, to give you a visual of all the different times and places in the Bible that something is mentioned multiple times in different places. Okay? Cross-reference. That's what it is. Comment on one thing that you notice or that intrigues you from the picture. The color combinations. Okay? What about them, Linda? So, so remember, the colors are based on the length between the references. So the closer the reference is, and he, he kind of worked his way through the, through the rainbow a little bit, but the closer the references are, they're purple and blue. So this was the one that I showed you, right? You see a lot of the purple ones, but you see kind of the blue ones there are super close, right? Um, but yeah, the different color combinations. Um, so there are, there are some passages, cross-references that are close to each other. That makes sense, right? Um, within one book, within you know, consecutive chapters for things to kind of build on each other, that makes sense, right? What about the longer ones, though? Yeah, look at how many there are that seemingly go from Genesis to Revelation. Um, 
or, or from Exodus to, you know, Revelation. Um, how many of those go from the very beginning to the very end? Second question there, what does that say about how the Bible, and the reason I'm bringing this up because this is also how we're going to read the book that we're looking at. What does it say about how the Bible was written and how one is to read it? Looking at this picture. Yeah, yeah. Um, you, you, you let, and this is kind of one of the first rules of biblical interpretation is if you come to a passage and you're like, what in the world does that mean? What most people do is go, well, what do I think it should mean? Or what do I want it to mean? Or what would fit with kind of my preconceived uh, presuppositions? But the Bible says no. When you find a passage in the Bible, the chances are very likely that it will also be addressed someplace else. Maybe even quoted someplace else. And go to that place and see what context. Is there anything there that would give you a more clear picture of how to interpret and understand the other one? Okay, good. What else? What kind of book primarily is the Bible? Primarily. A historical book, right? We, we would say it's a historical book. Well, when you're writing a historical book, how does it normally go? What are the rules of writing a historical book? I think they're pretty easy. Get your facts straight. But when you're writing it, how do you write it? Chronological. This happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, right? This isn't necessarily the way that we read the Bible, although it is a historical book. And what I mean by that is, we're not just writing or referencing events that took place one after the other. But because the Holy Spirit inspired the writing of Scripture, we've got one unified author who, when Genesis is being written, already knows how Revelation is going to end. And, and that's not necessarily a big deal if you have one author sitting down and writing a book. I would say most authors, when they sit down and write a story, they probably know how it's going to end before they even start writing it, right? But what is amazing is when you think about, we're talking about a book that covers roughly six, seven, eight thousand years of history and was written over the span of over 1,500 years by like 30-some authors. Now, that really is difficult to know when you're writing the beginning how the end turns out. But when, when we, we know and approach Scripture with the understanding of verbal inspiration, that the Holy Spirit is the one who actually gave the human authors the words to, to write and speak, this really shouldn't surprise us then that what was writ written by Moses in 1500 was then also communicated again by John in 90 A.D. in Revelation. So, so when you're reading the beginning, you're also looking at um, through the lens of the end, right? Um, this can be, this stuff back here can be some really dark, scary stuff, like the flood. Um, 
But what we're going to see is there's more to the flood than just the flood. Um, in fact, when the flood is happening, the Lord already knows how he's going to inspire the Apostle Paul and Peter to make that connection of what the flood teaches us about baptism. Okay? Now, here is, is what I think is interesting about this book. If you've kind of paged through it, you saw um, it's not a very long book, obviously. You can see that as you hold it. But there are 28 chapters. So if you can kind of do some quick math, 28 chapters, 123 these chapters are like three, four pages. They're really short. They're easy to read and digest, which I think is great. But as you look at the book, you'll notice that's not a misprint. As you go from top to bottom on the left-hand column, it goes from 1 to 14, and then from the bottom to the top, it counts back up. This is the way that Dr. Berg wrote the book, is in this kind of cross-reference way that the first chapter of the book and the last chapter of the book are intended to complement each other. They go together. And the second chapter and the second to last chapter go together. So we're kind of starting with the Old Testament and we're ending with the New Testament and Dr. Berg is going to connect a lot of these lines for us. That when this happened in the Old Testament, what does it now mean today for you and I in the New Testament? Okay? Um, we're not going to necessarily read chapter 1 and chapter 28 at the same time. We're still going to read them in order. But as we do it, and as we get to kind of the second half of the book, then we'll start bringing back some of the things that we've already discussed just as a reference. Is any of this making sense? Is that, is that, does that make sense as an introduction to it? Does this help? Okay, all right. I thought, it, I thought it did, but sometimes I don't know. Okay. Um, Dr. Jordan Peterson, I don't know if any of you know who that is. Um, he's a, a clinical... What's that? He's a Canadian. He is a Canadian. We won't hold that against him. He is, uh, I think, a clinical psychiatrist, psychologist. I never remember the difference. Um, but uh, he is someone who... Uh, he's written a lot of books. Um, he's spoken around the country. He's one of those guys that a lot of Christians, he's not a Christian, but he's a strong proponent for biblical morality. And so a lot of Christians are kind of like using that foot in the door to try and expose him to Christianity. And in one of the presentations that he does, he talks about this picture for like 10 minutes. And the quote that he has is, this is the first hyperlinked book ever written. You know what a hyperlink is, right? You're reading through a story online and there's a highlighted or underlined word and you click on it and it sends you to another page. There's a link within the link and then in that article there's more and you can get down. That's how you get lost on rabbit holes on the internet is you keep clicking on the hyperlinks and you're like, how did I even get here? Um, I, I kind of like that quote that, that this is the, 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 the Bible was written to be a hyperlinked book that as you're reading, if you can envision it kind of being on your computer screen, you click on this button for this verse and it's going to take you to another one where it talks about this even more. And if you have ever been on like a digital uh, version of the Bible, it's full of hyperlinks. That's actually, you know, it has those cross-references. So I thought that was an interesting quote. All right, here's what I want to do next then. 
I want to look at the foreword. We're going to read the foreword and the introduction today. They're both very short. Um, and then we're just going to look at a couple questions for each. All right? And then we'll be able to kind of read ahead for next week, and then we'll pick, there, uh, pick up there. Uh, foreword was written by uh, Pastor John Bordelin. Um, he's one of the guys I was hoping to get out here when, when uh, we had a bunch of the guest preachers. But he's like pastor at a really big church and they didn't have all past their pastors there yet. And he's like the vice president of the southeastern Wisconsin district, which has the most people and churches in it. So I guess he's kind of a busy guy. Um, but Dr. Berg somehow got him to write the foreword. Um, so that is uh, who's writing it here. Good friend of his. Here's what he writes. I'm on uh, page uh, Roman numeral five. The congregation sings in a quiet, darkened sanctuary on that Friday we dare to call good. O oh, Jesus, bless my help and rest. Regard my prayerful weeping. Usher me through death and grave, safe into your keeping. There is really no room for excuses nor any skillful skirting around the issue at hand at this service. God's own son is dead, and my faith in humanity is once again dashed to pieces. Even more... The honest confession of those who gather that evening must quietly be said, I have done this, Lord have mercy. The congregation members join together again in a few short days, and one might wonder if they are even in the same place. The sights and smells of the sanctuary have been transformed. Instruments and voices strike a new chord and a new song. What of sin? What of death? What of grave and hell? Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. Alleluia and amen. Pay attention to this the risen one, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He lives no more to die. What should you make of this, this death and resurrection? It is certain, and it is yours. You live no more to die. To borrow from St. Paul as he writes to the Colossian Christians and the church in Rome, there is neither your first Good Friday, this is neither your first Good Friday, nor your first Easter. Not for the baptized, in your blessed baptismal waters, you have been put to death and raised to life with Christ. Now the fun starts. The nurse working feverishly in the baby wing of the local hospital barely lifted her eyes as I made my way past her desk. Did she not know that the time had come for a death and resurrection right in the midst of her 12-hour shift? And those passerby on a Sunday morning, if they steal a glance through the church windows, as they cruise by at 40 miles per hour, do they not see the miracle every time it happens? I suppose you cannot blame either the nurse or the passerby, for it all looks so mundane and ordinary that it seems as if nothing is happening. This is God's way. In the hands of a feeble man with a cross marking head and heart, one redeemed by Christ the crucified, a name is spoken, and the name is spoken, and water is applied. What joys are ours? Adoption, forgiveness, redemption, new life, death and resurrection. The church throughout the ages in poetry and art, in prayers and hymns, in sermons and books has drawn connections, has told and retold this death and resurrection story. Pastor Berg has done the church of our age and I pray for the next generation too, a great service in this book. In the pages that follow, he connects the dots, right? This cross-reference. He connects the dots, traces the story, and connects the great story of salvation with your story. I refer to the author as Pastor Berg for a reason. 
While I have been blessed to call the author a classmate and friend and brother in ministry, and have seen him carry out his vocations as son and brother, husband and father, and have witnessed his gifts put to work as reverend doctor and professor, this book is no mere treatise for academia's sake. Rather, it flows from Mike's work as pastor, a true shepherd of those <clears throat> entrusted to his care, one who has dared to stand up and speak for the once was dead, but now quite alive in Christ Jesus. That sermon, preached to a group not at all unlike you, dear reader, is expanded here for those who are baptized, and I pray for those who are not, for those who might be wondering and asking. There are many ways to tell one's story, and by virtue of your baptism, yours is quite a marvelous story to tell. What of your father? His name for you is Beloved. What of your sin has been washed away? What of your name? A new name has been given. You are now his. What of your inheritance? Signed, sealed, and delivered. What of your struggles? You know who goes with you. He knows, he who knows your struggles has lived them. What of your ability to forgive? Truly all things are possible through him who gives you strength. What of your hope? It is certain. What of your expectations for the new day and the confidence to lay your head on your pillow at night in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit? You know who you wake with and in whose name you go back to sleep. What of your death? You have already died. What is there to fear? What of your life? That which is yours forever allows you to live today as well. Dead in Christ, alive in Christ. What about this life of yours? The last few years have brought a few old but new to us traditions to accompany my family's Easter celebrations. These are really cool. I think we're going to do these. New shoes remind the household that as God's Easter children, the baptized, we get to walk about in the newness of life. Any excuse to buy new shoes, right? <clears throat> Freshly washed eyes in the morning remind the household that as God's Easter children, the baptized, we get to see life in a new way. The old has gone. The new has come. Baptism means laughter and love, mercy and forgiveness, a listening ear and a warm witness. Baptism means all that is his is yours. And I'll be bold to ask, is there any other life worth living? Back to the sanctuary. There stands the font. How many have died and risen there? The Paschal candle is lit. The mystery of Good Friday and Easter, your own Good Friday and Easter, Brightly shining, not even death is able to snuff out the love of Christ. Front and center, at the base of the chancel steps, lies your body, possibly draped with a funeral pall. A symbol of the righteousness freely given in Christ. There you are, you dead and alive one. What shall they sing as it looks, oh so final? And you can read the words. All right. That's the foreword. Um, what thoughts or themes do you think Pastor Bordelin wants you to have and look for as you read this book? What are some things that he keeps referencing and bringing up again and again?
Anyone? Dying, Dying and rising. That's a big one. We're going to see that a lot, right? Um, and I don't know if he... Uh, I feel like he stole a lot of that from our, our Bible class that we did a couple years ago called Dying Well. Remember I said... Um, the way you get better at doing something is you practice it. You do it again and again. Um, so no one should know how to die better than Christians because we do it every day. Right? We, we, this is the point of our baptism. This is when you fight against temptation. When you say no to sin and yes to Christ, you are dying to yourself and you are being raised to live a new life in the newness of Christ. Right? As Christians, this is what we do. We die and we rise. We die and we rise. Um, so that's a theme we're going to look out for. Okay? What else? Yeah. It, it's going to be so drastically different when we look at Old Testament and New Testament because there's really no like small, seemingly insignificant things in the Old Testament. The flood... That's not a, oh, you know, a passing shower. Um, the parting of the Red Sea, kind of a big deal. Um, how do you compare those things to that thing? One seems so great and glorious and grand and amazing, and boy, what I wouldn't have given to have been there on that day. But this, ah, the baptismal font, but we forget, right? This is how God works. Right? In, the, in the, the seemingly mundane, God does His amazing work. Okay? Um, we're going we're gonna to look at that too. Anything else? Any other themes or topics you think He would want you to think about? I think those are good ones. Um, second question, number four. Which baptismal question or answer given on page 7, is most meaningful to you and why? So I read through that whole list. All of them start out as, you know, what of? What of this? What of that? Um, which one is, is most meaningful to you and why? There's no wrong answer. There's, there's a reason... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask probably a lot more questions like that in this class. Um, if, if, if you've ever done teaching, there's, there's different types of questions. There's type one questions. There's type two questions. There's agree, disagree, application, all different kinds of questions. A type one question is, I ask a question and there's one right answer and all the rest of them are wrong. I'm not really necessarily going to look for a lot of those. They're not going to be a yes or no where you got to like, oh man, I don't want to raise my hand and get this wrong. I, I want to try and answer a lot more type two questions, which is, you tell me, what do you think? Uh, how do you read this? What's your favorite? What don't you like? Um, so Ian, you had your hand raised. Why does that one stick out to you? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Jesus, who was tempted in every way just as you are, yet was without sin. Yep. 
Jesus, who was rich, yet for your sakes became poor. Right? Um, he, he knows, quote-unquote, the human experience. Right? Um, because our God took on human flesh and lived in this world and lived out our life under the law of God, there is never a single moment in our life when we can look to our Savior and say, you don't know what it's like. Can't say that, because he does. And not just because he's some omniscient God who knows all things, but he lived it, right? Um, in fact, he knows it better than you. Um, and, and what comfort that gives us, right? That, that, that we don't have a God like all the rest of the gods that, that, that mankind has ever created. All those gods do is make demands of you never to lift a finger to help you. You just have to do this to appease the gods. Your God says do this, and we say, God, we can't. And he says, I know, so I will. Um, and so all of those things. When, when Jesus says, pick up your cross, he doesn't just say, pick up your cross and good luck with it. He says, pick up your cross and walk in my bloody footprints. I will go first. Right? That's why I love the picture of Jesus as a good shepherd, as opposed to like a cattle driver. Right? Jesus is not behind us with the, the red hot iron, like telling us, no, go out there, go do this. Right? The shepherd goes in front so that whatever trouble comes, he encounters it first. Right? Um, what else? Peter. You remember that sermon better than I do, Peter. Um, and uh, certainly uh, the word is expectation uh, yeah. as opposed to hope. Sure. Our expectation is that heaven is ours. Yeah, this is Hebrews 11, right? What is faith? Faith is being sure of what we hope for, right? This, this certain hope is what we have as Christians. Good. Thor? What of your death? Yeah. Um, this is, this, is the, this is why people fear death. Because you only do it once. And I don't know what comes after it. And, and we don't know anybody who's experienced it and come back and told us what it's like. So it's all the big unknown. That's where 99.9% that's where .9 of fear comes from, right? The unknown. Right? I don't know what this is going to be. Um, this is why I'm terrified of heights. Because I don't know what's going to happen when I get up there. I've never, I've never stood up here before. I don't like this. Um... What of death? Not only have we done it multiple times in our baptism, in repentance, in confession and absolution, died and rise, died and rose, day after day after day, um, we know someone who went to death and came back and told us what it's like. And what did he tell us? Don't be afraid. Right? Um, good. Brandon, do you have one? How sadly ironic, right? 
Um, Jesus knows this, and so he even tells a parable to teach this, the unmerciful servant, right? Um, who the king forgives him this debt of millions upon millions of dollars that in a thousand lifetimes he could never earn enough money to pay back, and he cancels it. And what's the first thing he does? He goes outside and he starts choking the co-worker of his that owes him a couple months' wages, right? Um, I think probably when, when we're most tempted to probably cry out that, that line I referenced earlier, um, God, you don't know what it's like. I think sometimes it's, it's when we know that God calls us to forgive other people. You don't know and understand how deeply this person hurt me. Um, and so, I, you know, hopefully we recognize, yeah, that's why forgiving people is so hard. That's why it's so easy when someone comes up to me and says, I'm sorry, forgive me. My, my immediate response a lot of times is just, oh, don't worry about it. And, and that sounds like a very generous thing to say. But what have I just told that person? You're not forgiven. Because if you were, I would say so. Right? So it's kind of my nice Christian-y way of saying, I don't want to forgive you. But I know I can't say that to you. So I'll just tell you, don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. And that will allow me to bury it deeper and to continue to harbor my, my, uh, you know, my uh, bitterness and my envy and whatever it is that I've got stored up. Um, how do you forgive? Lord, you don't know what it's like. Are you kidding me? Um, Jesus is there dying on the cross for the very people who nailed him to it. Um, if anybody ever understood what the cost of forgiveness truly is, it is your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so then how do we do it? Where do we get that strength? Well, we continue to go back to the one who we have given multiple reasons time and time again to never forgive us, but constantly does. Right? What does real compassion look like? What does heartfelt forgiveness sound like? Um, what does it mean to re leave room for God's vengeance and to not exact it myself? Yeah. All of this is tied up in baptism. One more. Anybody else got one? Keller. Being able to fall asleep at night and oh, the yeah. the Holy Spirit not worry about being taken care of yeah. night or waking up the next day. Yeah. Um, that's one of those things. Um, if, if, if you don't, and you want to start with a prayer in the morning and a prayer before you go to bed, um, you can do a whole lot worse than Martin Luther's morning and evening prayers. Um, and both of them begin with, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because he wanted the Christian to remember that I begin my day and I end my day as a baptized child of God. And so whatever failures I had throughout the day, they're washed away in the blood of Jesus. And whatever plans I make for tomorrow, Jesus is already there. Um, all of those things. I, it just, it's a, even if you don't have a prayer to go with it, or you haven't memorized those, I, I don't know that there's a better way to begin or end your day. When you first wake up in the morning, or when you go to bed at night, to remind yourself that I am a baptized child of God. And, and, and one of the easiest and most visual ways to do that is to make the sign of the cross and to say the names that were spoken over you at your baptism.
right? Um, maybe it'll help you sleep better. All right, good. Okay, let's get into the last section then. We got about 10 minutes left um, into the, the introduction. This one is shorter, strangely. <laughs> um, so this is technically chapter one, right? Um, here's what Dr. Berg writes. If you pay attention, you will notice that God's word is dripping wet. Everywhere you turn, there seems to be water. Story after story uses water imagery. Sometimes the water is as mysterious as it is in the beginning when the spirit hovered over the deep. Sometimes it is destructive like the flood uh, in the flood in Noah's day. Sometimes it is delightful like the river that flows in Ezekiel's vision, gently watering the land. Each image points directly or indirectly to, or at least reminds us of, a washing away of sins and redemption in Christ. The whole point of the Bible, God's word is dripping wet. So is your everyday life. Water is everywhere you look. Water is fundamental to creation and preserves life. You cannot survive without it. But here's the thing about water. It is both good and bad. We need water, but water can devastate. Water both destroys and saves. Water humbles and exalts. Spiritually, water both kills and resurrects. This watery image we trace through Scripture is all part of the story of salvation. It is a story of cleansing. It is a story of sins washed away. It is the story of death and resurrection. It is a story of baptism. And as a Christian, it is your story. This red line starts with a watery creation and ends with the river of the water of life flowing from the throne of the Lamb. There's one of those Genesis to Revelation connections. Okay? Eden's river gently watered the garden, but we don't travel very far through the pages of Scripture until we find water violently flooding the world. Water marked the beginning of freedom from slavery and the crossing over to the promised land. We are told that Israel was baptized into Moses. Those same Israelites were marked with circumcision, a blessing from Aaron the priest, and oil. All three are related to baptism. They were baptized, washed, with ceremonial washings that taught them about sin and grace until Christ came and truly baptized with a washing away of sin. We keep going and we see that Naaman was washed in the Jordan River. John baptized there too. Christ himself entered the baptismal waters of the same river. Ezekiel and John alike saw a vision of fresh water renewing this earth into a new and everlasting Eden. Water, water everywhere. As with many pictures, this water imagery finds its fulfillment in the New Testament, specifically in Jesus Christ. The images may start off vague, but they become clear at the cross. All things point to Calvary. The red line culminates at the crucifixion, not in crystal clear water, but in red blood. Yet it does not end there. After this red line runs through the pages of Holy Scripture, it jumps up and out of the Bible and into the hands of a pastor as he says these words, I baptize you. And your baptism, at your baptism, the story of Scripture became your story from beginning to end. You were made a part of the story, even the main focus of the story. The baptized are connected to Christ in the most intimate way. They die and rise with him. This is not simply a one-time event even though baptism only occurs once in the lifetime of a Christian. It is a life of dying and living. It is a life of cross and resurrection. And in the end, when all is done and life is in the rearview mirror, you will realize that this Christian life of yours was dripping wet. In fact, it was, in fact, a baptismal life from beginning to end. This book will trace the watery story from Genesis to Revelation in chiastic form. That's that kind of cross-reference form. 
The first chapter relates to the last chapter. The second chapter relates to the second to last chapter, culminating in the middle with who else? Christ and his death and resurrection. He pulls you into his death and resurrection via baptism and makes your life a baptismal life. All right, a couple questions. God's word is dripping wet. He mentioned that a couple of times. What does he mean by that? Okay, yeah, you're hard-pressed to, to find a story in Scripture that does not involve water, right? Um, and not just in a passive way, um, like, oh, they settled in this spot and there was water there. Well, duh, that's why they settled there. No, but in very active, real, meaningful ways, right? What else? God's Word is dripping wet. What does he mean by that? Not only is there water everywhere in Scripture... What is the biblical purpose of water often? To bring life, okay? So here we're back to the the death and resurrection thing, right? Um, Water can destroy, but can also give life, right? You can't live without water. What else? What's that? To cleanse, right? The whole story of Scripture is the story of cleansing, of washing away of sin. That's the whole point and purpose of it. Um, So of course there's going to be water, right? Right? Uh, God's word is dripping wet. Good. Um, Number six, how would you, or how does Dr. Berg, summarize or describe the baptismal life? So right before we even get going in the book, let's all kind of get on the same page. What is meant by the, the baptismal life? He talks about it there. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, we, we are never apart from the font and its effects, right? Um, it, it's, not a, it's not a one and done thing, even though it's something that is only done one time, right? It is an ongoing and forever thing, yeah? So it's a life always lived connected to the promises made to you there. Good. What else? Thor. Yeah, right? It's a way to describe now my life post-baptism, right? It, it, it gives my life a purpose and a meaning. Um, you know, uh, the Apostle Paul will describe this in, is it 1 Corinthians 6, right? When he says um, the, 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 the sexually immoral and idolaters and greedy people, none of them will inherit the kingdom of God, but that is what some of you were. But you were Washed. Right? You were cleansed. And so all of that is gone. You've taken off the old. You've put on the new. So the baptismal life is a new life. Right? One that you live now moving forward in Christ. What else? What's the baptismal life? Yeah, Mitzi? Well, it's death and resurrection every day. Yeah, right? Um, it is a life that's marked out by that pattern, right? To die and rise again. So that, so that when the time comes um, that I do it for the last time, right? It's old hat. Been there, done that. Okay? What of death? Any others to add? Okay. Um, do you have any questions or anything else 
different way to approach those. And it doesn't have, you don't have to tell me now, you can text me or email me later on, but like I said, I just, I want to include this on the end of every lesson so that you're kind of thinking through, um, you know, if you were teaching it um, to someone as you were reading through it, maybe, maybe something that, that we missed or I missed, um, just let me know, okay? All right, so next week, um, read chapters two through five. It's like 20 pages, okay? I have no idea how many we're going to be able to get through, but I didn't want to just do like, let's do one chapter a week and then we'll kind of drag it out. There's 28 chapters, so I don't plan on being on this for a half a year. Um, so we'll kind of see how far we get and we'll just, we'll go with the flow, okay? All right, awesome. Um, let's, let's close then this morning with a prayer. Gracious Lord, as we begin to contemplate the great gift of our baptisms, we give you thanks for the comfort, for the peace, for the forgiveness, for the new life given to us, promised to us, sealed to us by your word and your spirit. Uh, Lord, thank you for the forgiveness of sins, for the new life given to us, um, for faith implanted and strengthened in our hearts. Um, give us the ability, Lord, give us the, the courage, the strength, the desire to live the baptismal life, um, one that lives in this newness of life given, uh, given to us by your grace, one that, that lives with the Holy Spirit at its core, one that clings to the promises that you make to us that our sins are forgiven and new and eternal life are ours forever. Uh, Lord, bless us through this study. Strengthen our faith, our, our, our joy, and our confidence in our baptisms um, that we might walk in the newness of life as we live the baptismal life for your name and your glory. Amen. Thanks, everybody.